Welcome everyone to Coffee and an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena and we're here with Ellen Wong today, a naturopathic doctor who's going to show us a little bit about something we could all use in our lives. Uh, Ellen, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm really excited about this conversation. And I'm just going to first jump in and ask you, what is a naturopathic doctor? Um, and then we could jump into the topics we have for today. But what is that? And what do you do? So um, that's a really good question. <laughs> so a naturopathic doctor, I think about this as somebody who approaches health uh, from a different angle. Um, so depending on where you practice naturopathic medicine in the world, you have the choice to prescribe different things more often than not, it'll be some dietary stuff, lifestyle counseling, nutritional, um, counseling, and we have a more of a tendency to use natural supplements as, um, as opposed to pharmaceutical medication. But all that said is that different, um, depending on where you practice, some naturopathic doctors do actually prescribe and can prescribe pharmaceutical medication. So ultimately, I think the biggest difference between a naturopathic doctor and maybe like a more conventional medical doctor is that we take a very holistic approach to health. It's never about the one symptom that you're coming in with. Everything is tied together. Um, and so when you come in and you're like, well, I'm tired all the time, that can be so many different things that's happening in your body. And we we take a look at that. We take a very holistic approach to it. We look at your physical body. We look at your mental, emotional um, aspects of your health because this is obviously my belief, which is why I went into naturopathic medicine is that everything is tied together, right? You didn't come in just with this one thing. You are not just this one symptom you experience. Um, that symptom affects many different parts of your body and many different parts of your life. And so when you see a naturopathic doctor, we tend to spend a lot more time um, in each appointment to get to really understand you and how you're feeling and how that's affecting you in your life. Uh, and then obviously giving you options and suggestions that will address all of those different facets of health. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of things. First is this holistic approach. And mm -hmm. a lot of us, who use a traditional medical system, which you know we work great with, but they that might not be the holistic approach. That's just targeting. You might go in for a headache and just looking at that symptom, but this holistic approach of looking at everything that makes you you, emotional, mental, physical, to be able to understand what's going on. I feel tired a lot, so I think you and I might need to talk soon. By the way, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know the stress or something else. Your conversation, but um, that's a, a, a great way of describing what you do and the approach you take and so what led you to this path it's not the most common medical pathway for a lot of folks who are into health and wellness so what led you into this path and, and um, pathway in terms of natural naturopathic medicine mm. so I've always known that I wanted to work with people and I've always been very interested in health care of some sort uh, so when it was a when it came down to making a decision about which path I wanted to pursue, it was the fact that naturopathic medicine to me is both the physical, biological, and psychological approaches to, to something. And I think I like that. I like that part. I like even in the example you just gave with the headache, everybody knows you can take a painkiller for a headache. But for me, I'm curious to know well, what triggers your headache? And 
why, like what, is it stress? Is it lack of hydration? Is it the way you're eating? Is it, you know, other stressors in your life? It could even be physical, like maybe something's going on with your pillow and it's, you know, causing your neck muscles to, to contract a certain way. There's so many aspects to it. And I actually use that headache example because your headache isn't caused by a deficiency in pain meds. It's not a lack of pain medication. That's what causes the headache. So the pain medication masks the pain, but ultimately what's causing the pain. Mm-hmm. And I like that approach. I, I, I like approaching healthcare that way because I think it's, it's more than just, and I don't say, I don't say that in a bad way. It's just, there's, there's different approaches, right? Like sometimes when you have a headache, you do need, you do need to take your pain medication because you just need to move on with your day and you're busy and there's stuff to do. That's great. That's very helpful. But for me, I want to know, well, why do you keep getting these headaches? Mm -hmm. And can we work on that? Is that something that we can do so that in the long term, even if you do need to take pain medication, you can take less of it. Mm-hmm. That's actually a great, great way of explaining it too. This idea that instead of only treating the immediate issue, what is causing this? What what is leading to it? What's going on all around you? And it seems to tie very much to your philosophy of how you do medicine, but also to the current work you do. You want to talk a little bit more about um, this idea of the work that you do around. Um, looking at the holistic approach. What, what is it that you do in that area besides trying to understand all the symptoms, but how do you go about that? What do you do with your patients? So my main focus as a naturopathic doctor is working with women with um, anxiety and specifically high-functioning anxiety. And so from a broad perspective, we all know there's anti-anxiety medication you can take. And I think there's a time and place for that. I personally have also been on this medication. And what I've found and what research tells us and what my patients tell me is that when you take um, anti-anxiety medication, it does help you feel calmer because it reduces the physical symptoms, the heart racing and the feeling really jittery and not being able to feel like you're sitting still and like you're on edge all the time and you know maybe even like sweating or dizziness or like any of those things that are related to feeling anxiety um but what I've realized throughout the years is that it doesn't really get to the root of what's going on you can't um you can't take a pill and change the way you think And ultimately what you think is what causes you to feel anxious. Now the particular group, um, there's lots of different types of anxiety. The particular, I guess, type that I I focus on is something called high functioning anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, if I had to describe high functioning anxiety, typically these are women. So I'm just going to generalize and say women. Um, This is the person, the woman who is like calm and confident your successful high achiever who kind of appears happy and optimistic, but internally she's struggling a lot with overthinking, Mm. a lot of like ruminating about the past and the what ifs and the worrying about what other people think and the perfectionism and the inability to sit down and relax and inability to stop the mind from going. And there's a lot of mental chatter and a lot of times it's negative. 
these are the people that I have a tendency to work with. And they've often tried, sure, taking the anxiety medication if they're even given that. And the reason I say that is because when the medical community looks at anxiety, it's often there's a differentiation, like a, a point where you kind of decide if this person is has anxiety. And that, that differentiating point is, do you have something? Are you experiencing something called functional impairment? Which is just like a fancy medical term that off, actually doesn't really sound very nice, but it's really just a term that says, can you function in your day? Are you maintaining relationships? Are you working? Are you able to seek care if you need it? The problem is, is that the majority of people who are experiencing high-functioning anxiety, they're high-functioning. Mm-hmm. So they feel anxious, but their day is going just fine. They are going above their day. They are excelling at work. They have relationships. They have families. But it doesn't mean that they're not feeling anxious. They don't have this quote-unquote functional impairment. However, their quality of life is significantly infected, right? And so, and so when you talk to these people, and I know lots of people experience this, you inherently know taking a pill isn't really going to solve that, right? Like you can't take a pill and stop overthinking. Like you can't take a pill and stop perfectionism. Right? You can't take a pill and stop worrying about what other people think or worrying about being judged, right? And so if you're feeling very anxious and you need medication or even some of the things that I do as a naturopathic doctor with respect to dietary things or lifestyle, like if you need all of those things, absolutely, they can be a part of how you address how you're feeling. But ultimately, if you don't take control of those thoughts that are going through your mind and your core beliefs about you and that story and the mental chatter you have, everything is a Band-Aid solution. Like you need to get to that core. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. I tell people this all the time. You're probably not going to like working with me at the beginning because we do need to figure out how these things out. It doesn't mean I need to know the trauma though. And this is like the key thing. If people are sometimes nervous about talking about these things because they're like, oh, I went through this really traumatic experience or something happened to me or like I made this decision that was a really bad decision. I actually don't, I don't need to know what those things are to resolve it. What I need to know and what I want to know is the story you're telling yourself about that event or that situation. I don't need to know that why you made the bad decision. I need to know that happened And now I'm telling myself that I am dumb. I am stupid. I'm not worth it. No one will love me. I'll never succeed. I'll never be like that person. Like, I want to know the story you're telling yourself because that's what we need to work on. Very powerful. I mean, I keep, I keep quietly going, wow. Oh, and my eyes open because I I know, I know myself, I've told myself some negative stories that have held me back in some way. Uh, may, maybe I don't fall under this particular category we're talking about right now, but I can see how these negative stories play a role. But I also know a lot of high-functioning women who um, have had issues because eventually, um, while normally they are high-functioning, there are certain periods in their lives when there is an impairment, where they can't um, perform or do what they normally do or hide 
um, from everyone the, the way they normally would hide that anxiety. And there is a story of I'm not good enough or they're going to think I'm stupid or I can't do this. There's usually a story. And, um, and at the same time, they're doing so great. So it's not that it's an evidence-based, like you're not really good. Enough. It's not that at all. It's literally a, a, a story that they have to work through. And I don't think we talk enough about the fact mm-hmm. that we all have these stories about ourselves mm-hmm. and um, we don't talk about how these stories affect mm-hmm. us when it comes mm-hmm. to anxiety or other things. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's a really good point. And I think one of the things, and it's actually one of those conflicts for a lot of women, internal conflicts who are really high achieving and yet still have those stories is that part of it is, I'll give you an example of perfectionism. A lot of these women excel because they do such a good job and they know they're perfectionists. And they'll say, because I'm a perfectionist, because I triple check everything, because I work extra long hours to make sure everything is perfect before I do that presentation or whatever it is, they've excelled in their career because of their perfectionism. And so when you say, well, let's work on that, they get scared. Like, well, what? Like, if you take away my detail, my detail oriented behavior, if you take away the perfectionism, like, what if I stop excelling? What if I stop doing well at my job or like, you know, everywhere else in my life? And my, my, my um, thought around this and the way I explain it is what if you could be detail oriented and do all of these great things and continue to excel, but you come at it from a place of calm and confidence and groundedness instead of from a place of overwhelm and stress and anxiety what if you double check something because you want to do a good job not that you triple check something because you're scared what will happen if you make the slightest mistake or you're scared someone will judge you because you forgot a comma you know what I mean like there's a distinct difference as someone who is a high achiever or someone who does well you're always going to do well but you could do well and feel good or you could do well and feel anxious and exhausted yeah and unsure all the time and stressed all the time yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely it's very interesting because there's so many women in leadership positions who are doing amazing work and um and sometimes you know and I myself have gone through that where I'm where instead of enjoying the moment and being cautious I'm stressing over the perfectionism doing this way especially when you think you're competing against others because Mm -hmm. you're and in a more dominated, male-dominated um, arena or mm-hmm. profession, or because you're new in your position, or for whatever reason, I can see how we can get caught up in some of this negative inner thinking, this mm-hmm. negative story or narrative that isn't very accurate that we can rewrite. Mm-hmm. We, you and I talked a little bit about something before the interview, and and it's related to this, and it has to do with validation. This idea of external versus internal validation, the role it plays in um, anxiety and in this narrative that we play for ourselves. Do you want to share a little bit about that also? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you and I connected because I, I shared briefly um, a story about how this became something that was very important to me. And so without diving into all the little details, there was a part, I'm going to go with, in summary, there was a point when I made a decision in my life that was my decision to make, but my family didn't agree with it. And in that, um, 
we we kind of lost contact for about five years. Now I'm a single child. Um, I'm a, in a single parent family, and I was very and because my mom was a single mom, um, I grew up being raised by my mom, but also being extremely close to her siblings, so my aunts and uncles and my grandma. Um, and so when I was going through that phase where we didn't contact or truthfully, I wasn't allowed to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. You can imagine when your support system that you grew up with suddenly like all fell apart. And what I realized very, very quickly is that all of my self-worth and validation and how I felt uh, came from people around me. And at that time, a lot of that was my family. So if I did a good job, I got praised. And I felt good because I got praised. If I did something really good, then maybe I got a gift and that made me feel really special. If I did well on an exam um, or uh, achieved something, whatever it is, then I got validation for that. Um, If I felt unsure, if I felt um, anxious, my family calmed me down. So all of this was actually reliant on people around me. And it very quickly made me realize when I didn't have that, that I, I just fell apart. I didn't, I didn't know how to calm myself down. I didn't know how to talk myself through um, tough situations. I didn't have the external validation anymore that I was doing a good job. And on top of it, of it all, like imagine how you feel when suddenly the people who are supposed to give you unconditional love and support suddenly don't because of a decision that you made that was actually yours to make no matter what. And so when you suddenly lose all that, you start questioning yourself, like, am I worthy of love? Am I worthy of support? Am I really, like, am I really, like, what's the word? Like, am I really actually as good as I think I am? Because if, if you've relied on somebody else to tell you that you're successful and that you're good and, like, look at the great job you're doing and suddenly you don't have that anymore, suddenly you're like, wait, who am I? And, like, when you feel unsure, there's nobody there to reassure you anymore. And that made me realize how much I relied on an external factor to help me feel good about myself. And then the next step after that is of course, suddenly realizing that I am now saying a lot of negative things to myself. And then things kind of spiral, right? And at that point, I, like I was that, you know, high achiever. And so what I did was just buried myself in work, right? Like when you are uncomfortable and you don't want to deal with the thoughts in your head, the only thing you think of doing is really either escaping or you distract yourself. Mm -hmm. So I, and it's an interesting cycle. So I put in like 60, 80 hour work weeks. I excelled in my career, which then of course, other people don't know why you're doing this. They just think you're hardworking. And so they give you more work, (laughs) more work, but then you get praised for it. You get praised for it. You get the promotion. You get the external validation. And so there's the cycle again. Yep. Right. And so 
and then that like several years of that to be really honest and I burnt out like I completely burnt out and it made me realize that I mean it's a hard lesson to learn but it made me realize like first I was relying on it entirely on my family for it and then when I didn't have my family I just created a work family <laughs> and that family was the one that you know kept praising me and giving me rewards for doing the extra work which then kind of just cycles all over again and it was at that breaking point when I was completely burnt out and I had like nothing left to give was when I was like oh no no no, no. like this is all wrong like I'm just repeating the cycle I just like attached to someone else instead of my family family now it's this work family that I've created right and I mean this is a very dramatic story and not everybody has needs to have the story or experience it to understand I think I think we all recognize that we often rely on other people for reassurance and we often have a lot of negative mental chatter about ourselves but then when somebody else praises us it makes us feel a little bit good but then we question that praise and then it just kind of is like all this to say really is just that like it made me very 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 self-aware of the thoughts that were going through my mind and the story that I was telling myself about me and my world and my achievements and all that kind of stuff. As you're talking, I'm I'm feeling stressed because I've gone through that cycle myself many times. And I'm just wondering how many of us go through that when it comes to especially validation. And when we lose external validation, we don't see it. And so we don't have internal validation mechanisms. And so we turn to other things or, or we bury ourselves in work. I'm a big workaholic and I love my to-do list. And so I, I, I can very easily bury myself there, but then that means I'll excel even more in that area. So now I'm getting the external validation again. So now, you know, and so it's this vicious cycle that um, is creating anxiety actually, as I think about it, but I can see how many of us can fall into that, uh, into that cycle. And I think it's, it, it, it speaks a lot to having to learn to look at your inner story, to look at the narrative, to look at things like internal validation as you work through that and be able to empower yourself in that way. Um, Focus on yourself and what you're bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this leads to the work you're doing. So you started Joy Avenue. Mm -hmm. And you work with people through this business. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what is Joy Avenue and the work that you do through Joy? I know there'll be a little overlap over what we talked about before, but the work you do in Joy Avenue. So, so I Joy Avenue is a little bit of an extension of my work as a naturopathic doctor. So from a naturopathic doctor perspective, I do a lot of obviously work around anxiety and what that is. And what I started to realize was that I can help people feel um, like I can help people feel calmer, right? With the tools that I have as a naturopathic doctor. Although, and, and, and a lot of that helps you go from kind of this negative zone of feeling stressed and overwhelmed and anxious to this neutral zone where you're like, okay, you're not anxious anymore and you're calm, and for the most part, you feel pretty resilient that you can make it through most of the day. But then what was missing Mm -hmm. is that ultimately people don't want to just feel neutral. People want to feel happy. People want to feel excited for life. People want to feel vibrant. And for me, 
one of the things that I really recognized was that for something like that to be probably an ultimate goal for like 99% of the people in this world, we are never given the skills to do this. We are never taught what it means to be happy. We're never taught what, how to create happiness in our life. You actually said something. I don't remember exactly when in our conversation you said it, but you're like, you can't, you can't just find happiness, right? Like it's not a map that you can follow. And you're right. You're absolutely right. It's not like that. It's not destination. It's not like if I become successful, I'll be happy. If I make enough money, I'll be happy. If I get married and have kids, I'll be happy. Because if that is how you define happiness, I mean, it's unfortunate, but you actually might not ever find it because your happiness is on the other side of some marker of success. The problem with this is that we're going to reach that marker and then we'll find another marker. I made X amount of money this year. I'll be happier next year if I make even more, right? Like I have... I got married, I'll be happier if I have kids. If I have one kid, I'll be happier if I have a bigger family. I'll be happier if we can travel this way instead of that way. And it becomes this thing that's just just out of our reach all the time. And I think it's, and, and so I think for, for something that we all say that we ultimately want, I think it's very interesting that we don't look at how does one actually feel joy and happiness? in their life and how do we create that? Because I really do think it's something we have to create. It's interesting because I think a lot of us look at happiness as tangible external goals mm. and it's always a moving target. Mm. So for examples where, you know, if I make a hundred thousand next year, I'll be happy. And then I make a hundred thousand. Well, if I make a hundred, 110,000 next year, I'll be happy. But if I make a mm-hmm. hundred thousand again, I won't be. And mm-hmm. if I do this, if I get this, if I do this, if I have two kids, if I get married, yeah. I, think, I think we keep looking at happiness as these external goals, tangible items that we can see, touch or achieve. And it's more than that. And, and um, happiness, it's more than just reaching these goals. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us don't even know how to define it, but we're mm-hmm. always looking for it. It's one of those, it's an interesting thing. I've spent a lot of time learning about this. I've taken many, many, many courses um, um, about happiness and what that means and how one creates it in your life. And I've even gone as far to traveling to some places around the world that are considered very happy to understand what it is that they do that I think increases happiness. And I think it's fascinating because it's, I mean, there's different types of happiness. Of course you can have happiness if you buy something nice for yourself, obviously. You know, if you travel somewhere nice or treat yourself, that's fine. And I'm not saying that's not important. I think it is. But that is a little bit like the external validation. It's okay to have that. It's great to have that. But you still need that internal validation. You still need an internal sense of happiness. Because if you only rely on outside things, if, if, if the only source of happiness is external, then that actually means that someone else is in control of your happiness that can be taken away from you. Belongings can be taken away from you. 
right? Like, like things like, if, like praise can be taken away from you. There's lots of things. And this isn't to sound bleak because I'm realizing that we're sounding very bleak right now. But, but I guess all this to say is that it's okay to have all those things. Like I am all for going out and having a nice meal and, you know, doing the things that you indulge in that bring you a sense of happiness. But I think the difference is, is that like you internally have to create space for joy in your life. Because if you do, it will actually, you'll find happiness in the tiniest things. And then when you do have that external gift of happiness, whether whatever that looks like, you feel it so much more. It's not like a, I'm internally happy, I'm unhappy. So if I go buy myself something nice, I have it for like, you know, a couple of days and I feel really, really happy with this new thing. And then it fades away. So I got to go do something else. Right. Like if you have an internal sense of joy, the external stuff lasts so much longer. It's way more meaningful. And I I think there really is like a ripple effect as well. Like if you internally feel good, everyone else around you that comes into contact feels good. You find so much more purpose in the things that you do. You enjoy life a lot better. And honestly, I think you become more resilient because even when things aren't going great in your life, you internally feel good, which means you're more able to see solutions and to work out the hiccups and the stressors and the problems. So I think it's almost like a little recharge battery. You know what I mean? When life has things that like drain your battery, if you have an internal source to draw from, I think that's, what makes people more resilient and bounce back faster. I think you you just shared a big secret of life, which is this internal sense of joy. Mm-hmm. And you ended on that note about how that can help us bounce back from chat. Life is going to be complicated no matter what. There are always going to be challenges, there's always going to be surprises, health, life, general. And um, having an internal sense of joy will help us navigate those things better and come out of those more successfully, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, how do we, how do we, um, you know, how do we create this internal sense of joy? How yeah. do we um, get to the state of happiness and find this internal sense of joy? Yeah. I think we generally approach this from the wrong angle. Okay. We <laughs> often... <laughs> We often look at what can we add to our lives to make, create joy. What do we do more of? And my angle, my approach has always been, you already have all the stuff. Mm. What you should be asking yourself is what is draining you of your joy. Hmm. We are approaching this from the wrong angle. (laughs) Because we all, like you have, like you can buy yourself something. You can make, you can make a phone call and meet a friend that can bring you joy. You can go travel. You can buy yourself a vacation. You can, you can say nice things to yourself. There's so many things that we can do. You can take care. You can do self-care. You can do all the things you have. You have access to all this information at your fingertips on your phone, right? Like it's not, that is clearly not the problem. We can Google search, whatever all this like external stuff of like, how to take care of yourself? How do I eat better? How do like, there's, there's umpteen resources. What I think we're missing is what are we doing that's draining us of our sense of peace and joy in our life? It's like, 
you can keep trying to fill your bucket, but if your bucket has a leak in it, does it really matter how much water you pour into it? No. Mm. And so I say this, like, it's like, do you need to know how to do self-care? No. You know how to do self-care. You totally, you can Google this. You can read an internet post. You can read this Instagram post. Like there's no shortage of how, what kind of self-care you can do. My question to my clients has always been, what is, what is going on in your life or what is going on in your mind that is stopping you from doing the self-care? You know, you, you know, you need to take deep breaths. You know, you need to go for a walk. You need to, you know, you need to, you know, drink water, journal, all of this stuff. Why aren't you doing it? So what if I say time? That's, that's one of the most Great. common answers I hear. And it's yeah. one of the answers I usually yeah. get. Great. So then I go, what's draining your time? Mm-hmm. Is there people in your life that you're attending to that you don't need to? Are you always putting other people first? Mm-hmm. Are you freely giving your time away to people who maybe don't, like, maybe you shouldn't be giving that much time to? Are you giving too much time to work? Are you answering your work emails at 9 p.m. at night when you're not supposed to be? Okay. Are people, are you, like time is a very valuable asset. You can't get that back. It's one of the very few things that if you give, it's gone. And I'm not saying this to be selfish. I'm saying be very protective of how much time and to whom you give it to. There's always extenuating circumstances. You could have a sick relative. You could have a child. You could have a best friend. Like there's always, you could have a project that you committed to and you really need to finish. That's fine. Those are extenuating circumstances. But when they turn into habits, when it's always there's a project, then why did you take on that project? It's always someone else I need to help. Why, why, what is your fundamental belief about yourself that you need to help other people at the expense of you? Mm-hmm. We can help other people and still, like, you can be a kind person, but also put yourself first, right? Like, you, you, just because you take care of yourself, it doesn't mean you're selfish, Right. So then I say, like, why, why do you fundamentally not believe that you deserve as much care as you are giving to other people? That is the key to why your time is draining or your energy is draining. So uh, I know my time is valuable, but I'm putting my time in the wrong places. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and that's something I need to work on. I almost feel so I do a lot of time inventories which is great because you kind of see where this time is going, but how do you identify what um, what's valuable, what's not when it comes to time? Am I spending too much time on work? How do I reduce that? And especially because I also have my own small business, am I spending too much time with this particular individual who doesn't maybe deserve as much of my time anymore? Or it's hard because at the same time, you always want to be there for everyone. <laughs> That's my other issue. And I, I think you, you, you really hit on a very important point. Um, what's draining you? You have to do that analysis. And, and mm-hmm. we just talked about one of those things, time. A hundred percent. If you examine where you're spending your time, there are things you don't personally need to be doing. There's things that someone else can probably attend to you. You're probably also saying yes to things you can say no to. And a lot of that comes from a, it's a fear-based decision. It's a, well, well, if I say no to this person, what will happen? Will I lose a client? Will they think poorly of me? Will my manager think I'm less capable? 
Yeah. Right. Like there's, there's, there's a train of thought behind each of these decisions. I think we don't, we don't often think about these trains of thoughts. And when we do, we'll very quickly realize that certain things feel good when we spend time on them and certain things don't feel good. And then I say like, well, what's the energy going behind helping a person who's obviously overextended um, your, your care and attention? Is that a really good exchange of time and energy and resources and what you're getting back? Mm-hmm. Like, are you even getting a sense of, like peace are you getting a sense of happiness helping this person mm-hmm. anymore is it joy is it yeah is it yeah is it bringing you joy and if the answer is no again there's extenuating circumstances where sometimes you have to do something because you have to and that's fine i'm not saying don't be responsible right like be responsible but i think most of us are not like i think we all know we're i'm not talking about extenuating circumstances i'm talking about the constant making decisions around time, energy, space, whatever it is that isn't aligned with how we truly feel. And that ultimately drains your sense of peace and joy, happiness and comfort. This has been, so for me, this has been very uh, helpful. I feel like I'm your your patient right now. (laughs) I'm looking at my inner narrative, um, uh, my story, um, what aspects of it are negative that I need to work on that might be affecting how I live and behave and feel. I'm looking at um, happiness. How am I defining that? Am I truly happy? What's my internal sense of joy? And what's draining my joy? Mm. What, what do I need to work on so that I can feel happier or have a greater sense of internal joy? Uh, the external is important to some extent, but the internal is the most important thing. It's what guides us um, and it's it's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. So this has been, uh, I feel like, you know, we've just had therapy hour and everyone <laughs> to this episode or watching it, you're, you're wondering, okay, well, she's going through, you know, Jackie is the patient here and we're going through this process. But I think, um, I think what the things I go through, a lot of people go through and I see it more in women than in men. That's the other thing in terms of the inner story, mm-hmm. in terms of happiness, in terms of um, joy, internal sense of joy, in terms of what drains you in terms mm-hmm. of, in time. Time was that big one. What's mm-hmm. draining time? And and I, I, I think I, and, and, and trying to please too many people and accomplish too many things. And your hands are in so many different buckets, more so when you're a woman than a man. And so I can see why this, inner work is so important for everyone, but I can see why women need to take a little bit of time to really do this inner work and to understand their own definition of happiness, sense of happiness, internal sense of joy, and what is draining their joy or happiness. That was a great summary. Uh, Thank you. I'm getting closer to an A again. Okay. (laughs) I'm always grading things too. It's the teacher in me. (laughs) Um, so, so since I took away your spotlight for the summary component, maybe you can share a few um, final tips or words of advice for our listeners who got a lot out of this conversation in terms of the holistic approach to, to what we do to medicine in some ways, but this holistic approach to our lives and then leading into this conversation about the root cause of things, happiness, 
joy and what drains us. What are some final words of advice, some tips, anything else that you might want to share with mm. us or anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share mm. with us? I think, uh, I think, I think, first of all, you did a great, you didn't take the spotlight. I thought you did a fantastic job summarizing everything, probably much better than if I had to, if you were to ask me to summarize what I just said. Um, but I will say this, I think, I think it's, I think sometimes the internal work can feel scary and like you're too tired to do it and whatnot. And it, it doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be this horrible thing that you have to now go and examine and dig open the wounds and all that kind of stuff. But people come and ask me this all the time, like, how can I feel calmer? How can I feel more grounded? How can I have more energy? And I'm always like, you've got it. You don't need to add another thing to your schedule. I think we're all busy enough. Yes, self-care is important. But I always ask that question, which is what we just spent some time talking about. It's like, what are you doing right now that is draining this? And you can, and once you figure out, like you said, time, I, I like give my time away. Great. Let's talk about why. Why do you give your time away? And that's really, like, that is the key. Identifying the thought that goes in your mind that happens right before you take the action to, to do the thing, right? Like ask yourself, instead of sitting at home, this happens a lot with the people I work with, and you finish work, you take care of your kids, you sit down, it's 9 p.m. at night, and you're sitting down, you're supposed to be resting and taking the rest of the day the, the day off and, and unwinding, and suddenly you're like, maybe I'll go clean the kitchen. Maybe I'll go tidy up the house. And I'm always like, Right before you decided that that was what you were going to do, what went through your mind? I think you need to ask yourself that question. And when you do ask yourself that question, you will probably start to realize you have some interesting thoughts about why your house needs to be clean all the time. I'm not saying we should all live in mess. All I'm saying is at 9 p.m. at night, why do you need to get up and clean your house right then and there? Like what's driving that behavior? There is a thought that happens before that. And if you can identify the thought that happens before that, you're going to actually be able to sit down and do your self-care. Mm. Our thoughts always dictate all of our actions and decisions. And so instead of going on autopilot and what, like jumping up and cleaning something, because that's kind of what you decided you were going to do right then and there, just take a moment and be like, why is this important that I do it right now? Okay, it's not why is it important because we all know, we all get it. We like living in a tidier home where you gotta like clean up the mess or like whatever, that's fine. But why does it need to be done right now? Hmm. What is it? What is it that you need? Like why now? And I think that's gonna give you a lot of interesting answers and insights into what drives the behavior. And I think the great thing about that is once you ask yourself that question, you could still decide to get up and clean house. I'm not, I'm not stopping you. That's fine. Get up and go clean. But now you know why you're doing it. And at least if you know why you're doing it, you can make a decision, a conscious decision about, about taking control of your life. Like, like I made the decision, even though I know that I am cleaning my house because I was told that I should keep my house clean because heaven forbid someone sees this mess in my house. Like that's could all be your thoughts. And then at that point, if you're like, okay, I'm still going to clean my house because I need to. Cool. That's great. Maybe because tomorrow you don't have time. That's fine. Go do it. But it's a conscious decision. 
And that's part of taking control. That's part of taking control of your mood and your energy and being like, today I'm consciously deciding that even though I'm tired, I have to go clean my house because tomorrow someone's coming over and I won't have time. When you have a conscious decision, it feels better to do it. But if you suddenly realize that at 9 p.m. at night, you're only cleaning the house because you were told from a young age that it's your job to make sure that as a woman, you got to take care of your house and like heaven forbid someone come and see this mess. All I want to know is who's coming to your house at 9 p.m. at night, unannounced, and then has the audacity to judge you for having a messy house, right? Like at that point, I'm like, you, not a good decision. Not do your self-care, rest, relax. I like that, that thought process. I love this idea of taking control. Mm-hmm. It's your life and for your sense of joy, for your happiness, your story. It's about doing that deep work. Mm-hmm. So you can take control, be mm-hmm. in control, know why you're doing things, how, and what you need to do. I, I, I like that idea as well. I was going to say one, I, you just brought this to my mind. Um, one of the key, Key components mm-hmm. in determining someone's happiness is whether they feel like they have control over their time. Mm. That is actually a key determining factor in how much happiness someone experiences. Because when you control your time, you feel like you have control over your time. It means you get to make decisions about what you're doing with that time. Mm-hmm. So if you decide that you want to clean your house because it's going to make you feel good because you want it, go do it. If you are cleaning your house because you were worried about how someone else is going to think of you, how is that going to bring you joy? This is great. I have a lot of work to do on myself this weekend. <laughs> Thank you for letting me be your patient during this particular coffee and interview episode. Um, but Ellen, you, you opened my eyes up to a lot of things that I've thought about, but I hadn't connected the pieces And I think it's important for us to take a little time to do that internal work. If we don't do the internal work, if we don't do the analysis, if we don't look at these things, we're never going to take control and be able to feel happier and and have a better internal sense of joy. So thank you for sharing all these tools, tips, advice, and um, for walking me through that analysis journey, because you might not have realized it, but I was doing my own little analysis (laughs) in my head. And and I definitely will be doing this deep dive this weekend um, as I think about how do I create a better sense of happiness and joy in my life. Thank you for, for inviting me. It was really lovely meeting you and speaking with you. And I hope that you find value and that your audience finds value from our discussion today. Lots of value. So I have a lot of great tips for our listeners that I'll post out in the social media announcements for this episode. And in terms of resources, if you look at the description section for this episode, you'll see resources with links. Depending on the platform, you could click right on the link or you could copy and paste the link into your preferred browser and enjoy those resources, that information. And um, to Ellen, thank you so much for being on Coffee in an Interview and going on this journey with me in this conversation about um, happiness, joy, and taking control. Uh, I think this is valuable for anyone who's listening. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me.